thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 sleepers and that was then this is now with the all access patron membership you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the chills at will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations literary event calendar and the chills at will podcast news you will get a shout out on a future episode too with the vip patron tier which is ten dollars a month you'll get access to all episodes a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure. 99.999% fun. I've gone to interview people like Disha Filia, what? Matt Bell. Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Cochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks. 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Allegra Hyde, with Justin Tinsley, Jose Antonio Vargas, Yasmin Ramirez, Kai Harris, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 161. It's a pleasure, pleasure today to be joined by Matthew Celisis. A little bit about him is that he's the author of four books, most recently the National Books Bestseller, Craft in the Real World, and the 2021 finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear. Adopted from Korea, he has written about adoption, race, and Asian American masculinity in the Best American Essays 2020, NPR's Code Switch, the New York Times blog, Motherload, and The Guardian, among other media outlets. He has taught fiction and Asian American literature and studies at the University of Houston, Coe College, Oklahoma State University, and various community writing centers, as well as at the Tin House, One Story, and Kundaman Writing Conferences. BuzzFeed has named him one of 32 essential Asian American writers. Good morning slash afternoon. How are you today? Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, such a pleasure. And I know, like like we were talking about before we were recording, that you're going to be doing many of these. And I'm I'm so appreciative that I'm able to to spend this time with you. Book, you know, people will be listening to this on, on Tuesday the 17th. The book is, the book is out. In the the book is out. Yeah. Yes. The 14th, but the book's out in the future. What's that? <laughs> Tell us a little bit about, you know, any, any, any readings or bookstores or, you know, did you really like to highlight? I know you got a lot coming up. Yeah, I've got a launch party uh, tonight you know, in the okay. future tonight <laughs> <laughs> at Books Are Magic on Montague Street with Kirsten Chen, who's my BFF from yeah. grad school, author of a, a great best-selling novel called Counterfeit. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, are you, when you say launch party, I mean, are we talking champagne? Are we talking like... Oh, yeah. Like, champagne, okay. caviar, you yeah. know, we'll have a, it's on a yacht. Obviously. 
I, I <laughs> yeah, assume yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Jeremy Lin will be there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. You know, it's exciting stuff. Um, obviously, you've, you've been through it before. This book's already gotten a great write-up in the Boston Globe. I want to say the Washington Post as well. Yeah, the Wampo one was amazing. All right. That's so cool. You feel like it's a departure from what you've done before? To call it a basketball book is is limiting. Some different subject matter, but maybe not so much. Do you feel like it was a departure for you? No, I don't feel like it's a departure. Uh, you know, I, I guess I can see a kind of arc through the books. But so maybe like an evolution or something, okay. uh, like a Pokemon. It's like the third hey, stage hey. now, right? Okay. It's the, <laughs> they're the big Pokemon. Okay, awesome. So I'd love to talk just a little bit about, about growing up and your relationship with, with the written word. This was in Craft in the Real World, which is an absolute classic, instant classic. Quoted as saying or writing, quote, As a child, I used to read fiction for exactly this sense of agency to feel that the world which felt so out of my control could be controlled. What did that lead you to reading? I mean, were you reading like high fiction? I remember it was a term I think you used in, in Craft in the Real World. You know, were you reading, you know, fan fiction? Were you reading, I mean, what, were you, what were you into as a kid? And, and kind of how did that inform your later writing even? Yeah, maybe high fantasy. Is that what you're thinking of? High fantasy. I'm sorry. What did I say? High fiction. I was wondering oh, what that one was. <laughs> I just made that up. Uh, made or that high, up yeah, yeah, high fiction. It's like what you read when you smoked a lot of pot. And... Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I was reading a lot of like, uh, you know, what is became later kind of Harry Potter, but the like Narnia and okay. um, other books, uh, the Susan Cooper, Dark is Rising series. Mm. Um, a lot of books that were either like kids entering into a kind of high fantasy world or that were just kind of straight fantasy um I remember i was i read like these books about like a princess who was uh captured by dragons but then was just like made friends with them and mm. was hanging out with them <laughs> mm. uh yeah but so a lot of times these books right were like kids or younger adults who felt like outsiders and didn't have a lot of control over their lives you know, were bullied or whatever, mm -hmm. seen as different. Um, and then they found, found out, right, that they were like the main character of this totally other world that's built mm -hmm. around them. And they have lots of powers in this other world and they kind of can have control over the things they didn't have control over mm -hmm. in the regular life. And I think that's kind of a common thing that kids deal with a lot. I know my mm -hmm. kids are always trying to test out how much control they have, right, how much sure. power they have. Sure. You know, like no is probably the first thing, but then now my six-year-old is going through this phase of just saying exactly the opposite of uh, whatever he actually wants. And then when I grant that, he's like, no, I didn't mean that I want the other uh, thing. And then I grant yeah, that yeah. and he says the opposite. You know, yeah. Like how, did, how did you not know that? Right. How did you not know? That? <laughs> I know. Okay. I know. Uh, I don't know that I've ever read an author who uses the word like solipsis as much as or solipsism as much as like Tobias Wolfwood. Like. <laughs> Like so many times, but you know, you, I guess you're kind of talking about that a little bit of like creating a world for yourself. Like, did you feel, I guess to ideas of representation too, like, could you have said at that age, like, oh, I'm searching for representation in whatever way that you were? Or no, there really was no yeah. representation at that None. age. It's a pretty, pretty new concept. Yeah. I mean, for Asian Americans, at least and for adoptees, especially there was really nothing. I think I had one book. It was called like We Adopted You, Benjamin Koo. And uh, for a long time, I've written about this somewhere, but for a long time, I kind of mistook the details of my life or the details of this character's life because wow. it was the only thing that I had. It became mm. this kind of like arch narrative. Oh, my gosh. 
is is that kind of a paternalistic book? The just the I didn't even know the book, but just the title. We adopted you. Did, does it come off as very paternalistic, like almost like we saved you? Yeah, it's a kind of well. It's not. It doesn't go that far. I think it's. I remember. You know, it's definitely written by an adoptive parent or somebody kind of adjacent to that. And then, um, but I, I think I remember it having some note about asking adoptees uh, about the story. But um, it's kind of like a very young child's perspective, if anything. And then from, yeah, so it's 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 hard to say that it's really like what feel right. when you're, right, because you're too young to actually express that to somebody else who's writing a book about sure, you. Right? Sure, sure, sure. So many different layers there. What um what were you reading as you got into, into high school and college? Um, you know, what were some of those books or some of those formative writers who just made you kind of see what was possible, I guess? Yeah, I was reading mostly just stuff assigned for school. Um, I must have been reading other things too, but I was reading like, I remember hating basically everything that I read <laughs> <laughs> for school except for The Great Gatsby. Um, you know, there was like The Color Purple, which I hated at the time. Everybody hated in my class, but then I reread it, you know, uh, you know, as an adult and sure. I realized it was like absolutely an amazing book. Oh, yeah. Um, just wasn't ready for it. Uh, I remember reading um, was Catcher in the Rye, which I also reread, but I still think is a terrible book. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. You're a phony. What a phony you are, man. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great line. You read it again and you still didn't like it. As far as your own writing, I mean, have you been writing ever since you were a kid along with that reading? Like what, was there a eureka moment or moments where you, you know, your work resonated with people, your work resonated with yourself. It was like, well, I can, I can do this. No, I, I grew up with parents who were both school librarians. And so I kind of, they were always, you know, books were always a part of our lives and, and the books were like the one thing that they would kind of always buy for us. So we kind of had, um, had books around often, you know, books for presents at every holiday. Uh, And so I did feel like the world of books was one that I could enter into even when I felt like um, the kind of identity markers that set me as different in real life were still a part of the world of books. Uh, But I remember, you know, in maybe middle school, I wrote what I thought was a really long novel, which must have been like 100 pages. It was fan fiction of uh, the Redwall series. Okay. I think my middle school has it in their library still, or or maybe they've gotten rid of it by now. They have your novel. Well, this old it's about like a wolverine and a alligator or something. Oh man, you got, <laughs> the, you got the archive at your school library. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. up until today. I know you're you're an educator as well. Obviously, um, you know the book is so much about workshop and everything and crafts in the real world. But who are the writers and readings that are really thrilling you? And I'm you know maybe it's an interminable list, but also like your students. Who are they really responding to? The students are really into Katie Kitamura. Uh, okay. I've, heard, I've heard her name a lot. I, I also really like her books. Um, a few years ago, it was I mean, I think they go through these like phases, right? Mm. Um, but this is the kind of big influence right now, it seems like. And then also um, uh, some British writer who's very famous that I'm forgetting the name of, mm-hmm. um, who writes about like just upper middle-class white women, I don't know, mm-hmm. like a HBO show or something now. 
what I'm talking right. about? Sounds vaguely familiar. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so they're, you know, it's kind of like these narrators who are disaffected, um, stand at a kind of distance from themselves hmm. and then kind of observing the world around them and these friend groups in which they like, you know, feel close to, but don't really belong to, or feel like they don't belong to. Okay. I would love to talk about, you know, you, of course, have had so much success before um, and we could talk, you know, I don't want to take six hours of your time, we, but the the sense of wonder is, I believe this was in the interview, you said something to the effect of what really appealed to me is that I could write a book about K-drama and then K-drama or Korean drama and then legitimately call it research. I'm so interested to know about how much it was based on on Jeremy Lin and Lin Sanity and, and all of that. I want to say 2012 that was? 2012, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a basketball book. It's also, it's a book about so many other things. I just love to know some of the the seeds for the book. Yeah. So Linsanity definitely was an early seed for the book. I, I probably mapped out some kind of story around uh, one story and uh, Linsanity maybe a year or two after that. And then um, wrote the first half of the book about, about one who is the kind of Lin type character, except for Korean uh-huh. American and, um, and then uh, a few years later, I wrote the second half of the book from Carrie Kong's perspective, and Carrie is a producer of K-drama. And so it was sort of, I remember thinking at the time, I'm just going to write now about the things that I just want to hmm. do and that I think are fun. And then it also like allow me to then call the times when I'm watching basketball on TV or yeah. K-drama on TV research for Hi. the novel. No, because I remember, you know, like you, you kind of have to carve out time, mm. right? And I had a family and, and I always felt bad for taking that time. And, and my wife would be like, you're not really, you should be writing. And I'm like, uh, well, this is writing kind of. And then I felt like this is was a way to legitimize that. There you go. I wonder about any challenges. I mean, it's a, it's a semi-fictional storyline, like you said. I mean, if if you, I mean, I consider myself a pretty big i mean big basketball fan so i knew you know i remember jeremy lynn and, and the story around that but like because it is semi-fictional like did you feel any pressure to not veer away too much or you know um oh all- no no yeah. yeah it's totally fictional yeah it's, um i just kind of took the basic facts of what happened mm-hmm. for those two weeks and um both like the kind of the way the media saw it while he was winning and then the way the media saw it after he had lost. And then what happened kind of with his contract at the end of that season right. where the Knicks were like, go find, you know, go find another offer and we'll match it. Uh-huh. Right? And then he finds another offer and then they're like, yeah, actually we're not going to match it. Yeah. See you later. Yeah. Did he go straight to Houston after New York? He went to Houston. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I thought in the book, I was like, okay, he's going to go to Houston. Nope. Nope, didn't yeah so spoilers <laughs> but i did yeah. you know i didn't want it to kind of end the way that insanity ended <laughs> sure sure so there's there's a lot within the book about like like triangles and like i get you know literal love triangles and then you know triangles of like i don't know jealousy or revenge is too strong of a word but like some sort of you know payback you have powerball this is paul burton and Powerball, every single time in the book, you know, that's his nickname, he's described, he has an exclamation point after his name. Yeah, yeah, so that. he's I legally changed his name to Powerball, exclamation point. 
what, what, what's the, the the rationale on that? I thought it was so cool. Well, you know, when I was uh, watching a lot of sports, this must have been, uh, what, like early, late 2000s, uh-huh. uh, the aughts, um, there, was, there was like this trend of people changing their names, right? Like Meta World Peace, okay, Josinko, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. Chad Ochocinco. <laughs> and I thought it was, it'll be fun. Like, I'll just have him change his name. But what would be really, or, or like the artist formerly known as Prince, right? Prince mm-hmm. went for like the symbol for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I thought it'd be fun to make people have to write an exclamation point every time they wrote your name. You know, like okay. if I was going to change my name and people were going to write about me, what would I want? Yeah. I'd want them to like be forced to exclaim about me every time. Yeah, that's so cool. Uh, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> the the book starts off with i mean I, I guess an epigraph you would call it it's it's a line it's a real line from the new york times about um how i guess scouts were saying that like you know jeremy lynn he like lacked a comparison yeah there wasn't a frame of reference for it wasn't a frame of reference right i, I don't know your your basketball knowledge going back but i don't know if you remember like keith van horn yeah keith van horn right? uh-huh i always remember when he came out he was he was compared to larry bird Right, I'm a white player, white player, and he said, "I don't know why it always has to be, you know, racially the same." I always feel like I'm more of like Derek McKee, who I thought was not a great uh, player, but Derek McKee was a solid <laughs> player. You know, I was, kind of, I was kind of a random comparison, but I was like, I get that. Yeah, that seems a little random. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but then, in second or third page or so, or maybe the first, you know, there's there's the joke. We have Robert Sung, who's a, a journalist. It's a joke about, um, you know, about an Asian American basketball player. And it's kind of is dealt with again towards the end of the book, um, but we have you know like I said Juan Lee, who's in some ways described as the same as Robert Sung, but but not. They're both six two. They were point guards, and they both play with Powerball. I want to say six or seven years apart. Yeah, something like that, right? So Sung played with Powerball in high school, right. and and Juan is playing with him on the Knicks. Right. You described Song as, quote, unsettled by this. Well, this is one as the narrator, the multiple narrators. He's, quote, unsettled by being Korean while one is grounded. I wonder how so that Song, Robert Sung felt um, unsettled in his Korean. Yeah. Life. So Sung is adopted. I'm, I'm adopted. Um, and one is, I, I don't I don't think he's exactly the best authority, I think, on, on who Robert really is. Huh. Um, because of the similarities between them and because of the anxiety one has about like whether or not he'll end up like song you know as kind of like the second fiddle and then mm. not really having a career um even though he has this you know short couple week winning streak and it blasts him into stardom mm-hmm. um you know i think there was always a sense even with insanity that how like how long will this last mm-hmm. right either like how long will this last from the negative perspective or how long will this last from my perspective was like can this there's no way this could keep going forever right like mm. but i wish it would right um and so one kind of has the anxiety surrounding what will happen when it comes to an end mm-hmm. will he be seen the same way as robert song was mm. seen um and then come kind of compounded with that is this uh, the way in which adoptees are kind of a part of the Korean American community or part of the Asian American community, mm-hmm. but also are kind of this weird outlier to that community, or sometimes seen as an outlier to that community mm-hmm. as uh, people who weren't adopted. Mm. 
again, one or, or you you as author described, you know, one of the main quote unquote plots for Robert Sung is is Powerball. Like he he his his career in many ways was ended through an accidental injury where he stepped on, you know, Powerball exclamation points, um, you know, foot. Um, you know, and then there's uh the there's uh Brit remind me of her last name, I'm sorry. Young. Right. And Brit, you know, was was the the beautiful one throughout high school and seemed to always be I don't know. I'm 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 so interested too in what she saw actually in, in Powerball. She she doesn't seem to be the necessary you do a great job of just, you know, mixing up these these tropes, I guess, right? She could be like the the career like the climber, social climber. She just wants to latch on. But she also does, you know, charity things quietly, doesn't ask for publicity. And she's not a huge basketball fan. She's not necessarily like seemingly drawn to him because of basketball. So, you know, again, love triangle. I wonder what she maybe initially saw in in Powerball, in Paul Burton. Yeah, so I'm playing with this kind of like, everybody has a public face. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's probably not really who they actually are. And so from the outside, I think it definitely looks like if you were to look at this relationship between Brit and Powerball, Brit, who was like a child star mm-hmm. and Powerball, who was, up and, was an up and coming uh, basketball player uh, as a kind of like attachment to fame, right? Like her fame might run out, but his was just kind of starting. Sure. Um, and yet then there was this other person kind of following around Robert Sung, totally in love with her, totally devoted to her, who would do anything for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she rejects him in the end for Powerball. Uh, I mean, I think... I think from the outside that may that looks like one thing, but from the inside, I, I don't know that people are really usually that attracted to somebody who's like kind of following right. them around, right? And right, kind right, of do it, right. you know, kind of that can kind of, of yeah, right. exactly. And so the person who seems like they can stand on their own and likes you, okay. uh, right? The person who kind of has a strong sense of individuality mm. that might be a more attractive choice than. Um, but after years of that person, Powerball, cheating on her and doing, you know, like not treating her super great. Right. Um, they might, you know, devotion might look pretty good. Hmm. So with with one, they're seven and one. I believe seven, seven in a row to begin, right? Yeah. And he's I mean, he's just on fire. He's scoring 20, 30, 40 points. You know, it's an it's an absolute hysteria and frenzy around the city of new york and just around the country maybe you know around the world the diaspora the korean the korean diaspora and then after so the, you know the big thing is that he got his chance because powerball was you know had his injury he comes back they're all saying the right things you know yeah we'll be able to work together but you know they actually go oh and five after he comes back um the coach who's not really um described a lot other than the way that he acts towards one and, you know, as you say so well in Craft in the Real World, to mix the two books, you talk about it, you, you say some of the effect of, you know, I'm not so worried about micro versus macro aggressions, like racism is racism, I'm worried about the effects, etc. How did the coach deal with one in a, in a racist or a microaggressive way in the way that he Yeah, so the coach, <laughs> um, so the, the coach kind of is forced to play one, right? And okay. uh, doesn't really, has never given him a chance and never seen him as somebody capable of uh, having any success. And then when he does have success, the coach sees him as like, you know, the success is is mine for making like the brave decision to play this person. Mm. Right. And so you've got to like represent me and you should feel, you know, 
appreciative of the chance that I gave you. Right. And and the coach also knows, and, and one knows too, that the leader of the team is Powerball, right? And so they've got to kind of fit together. Uh, but one is just kind of getting his legs under him and he's facing an unguaranteed contract and mm-hmm. like an undetermined future. And the coach is, you know, not really kind of seeing anything. One is still like a person who just kind of lucked into this thing, right. uh, but didn't really deserve it. You write about, you know, subtle racism, um, you know, the all-star voting is that one actually gets, he gets uh, voted in, but it's like, oh, well, you know, the people in Asia, they're voting, they're voting too many times. Like, does this count? There's the, you know, race, race epithet, like in the headline. Well, it's not an epithet on its own, but it serves as one, you know, which I know is, is probably ties back to Jeremy Lin. There were some racist statements made, you know, towards him, of course, publicly, and I'm sure not publicly. But I also wondered, I guess just back to Robert Sung and his relationship with one, like, is there something about them externally, like society in quotes, kind of pitting them against each other, as well as maybe the way that they felt that they were kind of like in competition? Just like, I, I guess, you know, you, you talk, Wong describes how he's lonely in some ways, right? And Robert Sung, you know, as well, lonely for, for different reasons, but some of the same. I guess just like, do you feel that they they are pitted against each other by society with you know in quotes or or themselves they kind of play that up that they're they're, they're competitiveness against each other yeah it's a a sort of like scarcity model okay like if there's only a couple of you then you suddenly are in competition Mm -hmm. you know know, i remember even just being one of only a few asians in school you know all through my childhood Mm -hmm. um not wanting to associate with other asian american kids Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. Right. It felt like then I was just Asian American, the other Asian kid. Right. Or, okay. Um, right. Like, and I felt like I had to individuate myself in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's all the other kind of like uh, similarities about them, right. That put them even more together. And so there's this kind of like feeling of wanting to support or one wants to be like on some side, but also okay. is feeling this kind of pressure from outside and feeling the pressure from Sunk's side, this kind of envy or um, tension between them. And so can't, they're like connected, but not really connected. Hmm. There's a great line earlier in the book about some of the effect of like the person you envy better be good because it's, you know, it's embarrassing to right. someone who wants to envy right. somebody who's not the best. Right. Yeah. I just felt like that was like, so representative of almost a, like people who like loving sports, you know what I mean? Like, your team wins your team. Like, what does that even mean? My <laughs> yeah, team is yeah. better than your team. Like, okay. Like you don't quite, you know, <laughs> right. so there's, you know, with, again, with, you know, try not to get too many plot spoilers. This is uh, such a, such a, uh, such a great read. So many plot, not, not like huge, huge plot twists, but so much going on. We haven't gotten to the, to the K drama part and like this is more of the second half, but so there's some ideas of fidel- fidelity or, or lack thereof. Right. Between, right. you know, the husband and wife, etc. You talked about that with, with Powerball. Um, and you talked about the public face. He's shown it to be vulnerable. The whole egging scene. He's shown to be a really good father. You know, the video game scene and him calming pe- his kids down even when he was not calm. There's that scene that is so uncomfortable, which is a huge compliment to you. It is so well done. The scene there at the All-Star Game, they go out in, in Koreatown in L.A., and it's like he's literally in one ear. I'm talking about one in one ear. He's got uh Powerball telling him to like do this to the girl, to this woman who's into him. 
and the other is the woman saying, I, you know, I want to do this to you. That scene is so, like I said, icky in the most positive, positive <laughs> way. What, um, I guess, what is that like a microcosm for? What is that um, symbolic of, or is it just like, hey, let it let it be on its own? Uh, you know, I think it's this kind of all the desire that one has wrapped up in like trying to be like Powerball, stand on his own. And then he's in Koreatown, right? He's in K-Town where he's Korean and it's like he's a big deal in this one place, right? And and then uh, you've got this person right next to you who's like the person you've looked up to your entire life. And I think it can kind of get in your head and it can, you know, the things... I don't think our desires usually are very that are very straightforward. Mm. Um, there's this idea about desire called mimetic desire, where like you you have desires because other people have the desire, right? Like mm. it's how advertising works. You see somebody beautiful with this thing, and you think I must have that thing, and then I'll be beautiful, right? Um, and so the to have somebody who has everything that you want. Mm-hmm have a sort of desire also gives you that kind of desire and you start to like think that in order to have that life you have to have the things that that other person desires and you kind of lose sight of your own wants yeah well yeah i mean the the book you know you could read it just as a basketball fan and it's it's just great drama there's you know like you talk about mimetic drama mimetic drama what was the term you desire mimetic desire right i mean it's like psychological terms and there's just so much going on including you know, there's a story within a story. There's multiple stories within this book, you know, about K-drama. So we've got Carrie Kang. She's met one kind of in the in the middle of his uh, of his greatness, right? Yeah. So she meets him before the season starts and they start dating. Um, but yeah, they're kind of in a new relationship while all of this is happening. Uh, and then she's also dealing with her sister has been diagnosed with cancer. And so right. there's this kind of like all of this new wonder and life on one side and then all this kind of like threat of death on the other side. And then she's, you know, her job is as a producer of of K dramas. And so she's kind of flying back and forth to Korea, trying to keep this industry uh, a part of her life and bring it from Korea to America. Mm. There's, there's obviously a lot about her, about barriers to her as, as a woman barriers to her, you know, in, in in Korea as an American, quote unquote, in America as a Korean, Korean American, um, and she you know writes about like race as a cake, you know the like right you 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 captured that whole is it cake that YouTube phenomenon <laughs> is that over yeah. yet? I don't know is that over yet? What do you? I hope so. I'm not sure. My kids just watched that show on Netflix, the Is It Cake oh, show. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So who knows? You know, <laughs> it's a pretty cool thing in some ways, but it's also like such a good encapsulation of our culture sure, right? sure. You, you know again these two books work so well together i'm talking about craft in the world world where you know she writes about at times i mean feeling that that she lacks this free will and agency that that white men for sure that white people uh, just assume and that comes out so well in, in in craft in the real world just wonders about you know what power do we have over fate like you said her sister has stage four cancer there's you know her husband is kind of like hey let's you know, straight and narrow, no jokes about this. Oh, her sister's husband, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, her sister's husband, excuse me, you know, and and then while she, talking about Kay, she's acknowledging her grief more openly, her, acknowledging her her nerves and her her feelings, and she even has a living funeral. Um, yeah, yeah. 
how how would you i mean what an incredible idea like what do you think she was trying to accomplish with her living funeral i mean i think what she says in the book is something like what's the point of having everybody gather for me when i can't be there right Mm -hmm. i think there's something to that i i was writing a bunch of carrie's parts while my wife was getting chemo for stage four stomach cancer and was thinking about a lot of the things that Carrie and her sister Kay have to think about um, as Kay is diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. And um, so a lot of that experience is in the book and a lot of that like wanting to live is in the book. And uh, the idea that like, I wish that my, that we had had more opportunities, I think to do the kinds of things or coming together is that, happen after somebody died you know like i got a lot of support i think after Catherine died and um and and you know sometimes you wish those things happened during and it's just yeah there's a, there's a strange way in which we see these different stages of of dying and death and and what we can do in those different situations you know everybody will go to a funeral right, right. but will everybody kind of show up for somebody while they're dying Mm. Not, not really. Yeah. Well, you know, thanks again so much for sharing that within in a, in a fictionalized way in the book, and and just thank you for sharing your personal story there. I mean, there's again, there's a line, so many so many lines that are so profound, and thank one's you. from the fictional book, but it's it says so much about our, our our world. It's quote, I mean, the limits of the body becoming the limits of itself. A cancer patient is never allowed to be anything to, never allowed to be anything but a cancer patient. That's what Kay hated the most. I can't yeah, say better that's than why my wife that. hated the most, for sure. Mm-hmm. She hated when people treated her like a patient. Right. Yeah, so, you know, again, without doing too much at the end, the, the second half is a lot about the about K-dramas, about Carrie trying to get her her shows, her movies, her ideas, um, you know, put put on celluloid. Is that, it's like the oldest expression I've ever used. <laughs> Cell- I'm, I'm not sure. They still do celluloid in 2023? Probably not. Celluloid, is that like the maybe stuff 19... in your skin? <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Cellulite? Cellulite? I don't know. <laughs> or maybe, you, I, I don't know. You can tell I don't know enough about cinema. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> so it ends up being a, uh, I, I think a smash hit, right? There's for the love of your future self. Yes, yeah. So I put a couple K dramas in there that I had ideas for, uh, and kind of had planned out. But of course, I don't write in Korean, and I have no, uh, you know, connections to the K drama industry. So I thought, here's a good place to kind of like put these things in. <laughs> well, how about the word yet? I mean, who's to say you can't? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you maybe. know. But you know, there's there's ideas so much again about about fate and fortune tellers, and again, this goes back to like craft in the real world. There's a lot about you know who who is your audience if it's a you know cis white male you know like like the Iowa MFA was was created etc. Then like you know who what's what's seen as different etc. So my long winded point is there is a part where I guess it would be Carrie's voice. She describes K dramas, not in great, great detail, but like the logistics of it. Yeah. So there's a couple like one page sections where she explains, you know, the tropes of K drama, you know, how they work, the genres, 
and then there's a, the second the second one page section is she kind of talks about what happens in the second half of a K drama mm-hmm. usually um and you know so i was writing for an asian american audience who may or may not really be familiar with K drama right it's not really an asian american thing at all mm-hmm. um and, but of course there are people within the diaspora who watch K drama okay. and there are of course like other asian americans who watch K drama but mm-hmm. when i was starting to write the book it was before this huge kind of like explosion right um of K drama and squid game before squid game mm-hmm. and so <laughs> it always felt like even in you know my own communities most people didn't know anything about k-drama okay uh, and mm-hmm. so i was trying to explain to them what it how it worked right so mm-hmm. that there would be an understanding of like how these uh, some context for how the story works when it's maybe a, an unfamiliar thing sure the i believe again it was carrie carrie writes that k-dramas shine when in the tension between certainty and wonder and the title is Wonder. I mean, I I wonder, pardon the pun, <laughs> I wonder how you define that. Is it is it the same as awe? Is it just look at this incredible world or possibility? What how, What is wonder for you or for one or for Carrie? Yeah, wonder for me is this sense of possibility, right? It's yeah. this like you feel as if more things are possible than you thought were possible a moment before, mm. right? And so with Linsanity, that was a big moment of wonder for me. Um, I remember like when Obama was elected for the first time, uh, there, there are certain times where I felt like, oh, there's like the things that seem possible. Maybe there's maybe there's more there. And and often that kind of gets closed down afterwards. Mm. Uh, I think certainly in both of those cases it did. Right. But I think we have to kind of like really try to foster a sense of wonder so that those possibilities do seem possible. Right. And so that we can kind of like constantly be moving toward more and more possibility instead of kind of giving into the feeling that we're Mm -hmm. constricted constantly by what society allows us to be and and feel. Hmm. You so incredibly skillfully use these different points of view. The second half is, you know, Carrie pretty much gets the keys, right? She writes about the second half of K-dramas is this quote unquote danger zone where like, like, as in the, as in the series of episodes, right? Where, you know, whatever, let's say there's 20, like around 10 or 11, it's like, okay, they need to hold on to love. There's twists and turns in the same way the book has that, right? The book, I don't know, the book spans over, I'm not quite sure, maybe six or seven years. Like it's mainly about, you know, the t- the, the time of wonder, but it's goes forward in the future a bit. About a year, but then there are kind of jumps into the future at the end so we can see. And this is the thing that happens in K-drama, right? So that mm. like the K-drama spans a certain period of time in the romance usually. And then there's a there's a time jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was told not that long ago that this was happened because of censors that, um, uh, right. Like I often feel watching like a romantic comedy in the States, like, and then they break up. <laughs> and it's like, it's not, nobody's going to live happily ever after, after this, right. like they've gotten together, but it's in this kind of time of trauma bonding. And then sure. or like this exceptional time. And then after that, they're probably just going to call it quits. Right. Right. Uh, and so in K-drama, to get around that, they've they've built in these time jumps often where like somebody will leave, go study abroad in America or something for a couple of years, come back, and they're still in love, right? And they're still, they still have to work, make it work it, in this new context. Is there a suspension context. of disbelief there? 
Um, well, I think the suspension for me is actually you can just get on a plane and see, you know, like it's not yeah. a whole other world. <laughs> sure. Like and you can FaceTime somebody, but often <laughs> they'll be like, they've been out of contact basically. For okay. Years. And I wanted to show what happened to people, you know, after this one year of chaos, um, mm-hmm. you know, where do people end up? Right. Um, and also, so you also to say, right, like the book is kind of in these two halves, but they're, it's not like separated by time, right? They're like ongoing at the same time and interwoven throughout. So Carrie's half is, uh, it's not like this, it's not like the latter half of the book, right? It's kind of like happening at the same time as one's half and they're like alternating back and forth between that and, and the K-dramas. And so the K-dramas stand in as a way of like understanding that structure and understanding the moves that are being made in the stories uh, in one story and in Carrie's story. Uh, so that like people unfamiliar with this kind of story structure then have a, fr- a frame of reference, right, for how that story can work. And I would love to talk to you. I could talk to you for 20 minutes just about the ending. But again, we're not going to give that away. Just I mean, literally the ending, like the last sentence I thought was was awesome. Thank you so a, much. Lack of a better word. Oh, man. The, the moving forward in the future, there's not a lot of like fireworks in those scenes, right? It's not a lot of like craziness that happens. But I just felt like it was such a, it just, I guess, solidified what happened earlier. It was just Thank a grounding you. that I thought, again, was was incredibly successful. A um, couple of plot twists, I guess, right? Sure. This is not chronologically at the end, but maybe ending uh, about the book here is that at this uh, funeral that that Kay, uh, Carrie's sister, had, this living funeral, her last words were, don't let anyone kill your wonder. To keep the wonder, we had to stop fighting and denying grief. We had to know how to survive death in order to know how to live. Incredibly profound. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Incredibly profound. And the book, again, it's not just a a basketball book. There is so much going on. And I am not in the minority here. There are so many people already who have said great things about the book. And uh, those who are listening, like, what are you doing? Like, the book is out now. The book it's is out on the 17th. What are you doing? Run. Right? right? <laughs> Today. Run. Run. Run to the computer or run to the physical bookstore. Right? Uh, one last question, actually. Any any plans to – is Jeremy Lin – is he going to get a copy? No, oh, I mean, I him? hope so. There's okay. uh, Yeah, and then there's some, like, uh, TV rights in the works. So okay. hopefully we'll see, we'll see more of one story. Nice. Craft in the Real World deserves its own two-hour episode, especially among college professors and, and educators. I, you know, I teach at the high school level, and I haven't taught English this year since I've read the book, and I cannot wait to get, put some of that to, to to use. But my point is that I've, you know, just social media and so many people who teach writing have so many great things to say. I mean, they're putting it up there with, you know, Anne Lamotts and and Matt Bell's, and it's just it's an immediate classic for sure. The idea of what were you what were you working with and what were you working against? Like I don't know if writing against something is what exactly what you're doing, but kind of what what should we, what should writers, especially trying to be more inclusive, educators, what should they unlearn? Unlearn. I mean, that's not just life as an adult. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a professor in my PhD program who said 
said something like, I've just spent my entire adult life unlearning the things that I learned mm. up to the time I became an adult. And that seems pretty true to me. I think, right, like learning from this point forward is a constant unlearning. Mm. Well, I guess a, a good a good starting point is it's a fairly simple example, but I thought it was so illustrative would be like a query culture versus an ask culture. Like as, mm. when, you're, when you're doing dialogue in a book, right? How how was that kind of representative of of a more inclusive workshop and, and teaching style? Oh, so that's an example I use just to show that, right, like the ways in which we teach are usually by teaching certain expectations people have about how stories work mm-hmm. without really often saying that this is what we're doing. Right? Sure. So when we say, and, and this is pretty often given advice, right, just use say and ask instead of query or comment or something uh-huh. uh we're, what we're really saying is readers read a lot of books in this country in english come across the word say and ask far more often than they come across the words query and comment sure. and so those words tend to read sort of invis- quote unquote invisibly right they don't take up a lot of mm-hmm. mind space they're kind of just used to indicate who's speaking Right? And so when we're saying all of this, we're often just kind of like glossing over the actual reasons why we're telling people to do this, because the reasons actually go much deeper. They go to like the the reading tradition that we've grown up in, mm-hmm. in this way in which writing and, and craft is like a kind of uh, like cycle of repeating these moves, right? Okay. So that the more times you see say and ask, the more say and ask become useful. Uh, in that kind of invisible way. And the more times you see a three-act structure, the more times the three-act structure becomes mm-hmm. satisfying something that you have an expectation for because you've read other three-act structures, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. The So, you know, the book has a two-part structure of, of craft in the world, craft in the real world, craft in the workshop. You know, the first part has... Workshop in the real world. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I think, fiction in the real world and, and workshop in the real world. So I got both of them wrong, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know really laying things out just kind of more in a general sense in the first part and then more specific to the workshop you you define you know craft one of the chapters in the first part of the book is literally called what is craft 25 thoughts um you you define craft as cultural and it needs to be cultural you write that pure craft you know pure craft is 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 a lie to say that it's just um you know without political connotations etc I don't know what the word would be a synonym for like apolitical, right? Like not being political, a racial. I don't know what the term would be for not supposedly not using race. I wonder thoughts about like people who say, you know what, my writing is not racially charged, not racially is racially ambiguous and it's apolitical. Colorblind. That's obviously a huge mm. privilege. Yeah, and it's not true, right? Like mm. yeah, when you're when you're saying that there is no race, you're making it pretty racially charged statement. I mean, that's uh-huh. what's more racially charged than that. <laughs> right. I mean, you write about some of your own experiences where you were, you were basically what, f- like forced to, to mention the race of the person of your characters. Yeah. Just kind of uh, right. The, the default whiteness of characters default, and the way right. that we, we think of like, if a character is not race, isn't named, we're supposed to assume that they're white. Um, I think there are a lot of writers trying to work against that, but then uh-huh. in workshops, they often come up against people saying, well, like, well, what race, why don't you name the race of these characters? Mm-hmm. Or like, right, why are you basically breaking the rules that I am familiar with? Hmm. 
I remember, I mean, I've heard many times, especially in the last couple of years, you know, just about like who, who, who has, to, who feels like they have to write about race and, and gender and, and, you know, homophobia and, and those, you know, sexual identities versus no, nah, you know what, you know, my writing is universal. My writing is, doesn't, you know, pick up differences and such. And you explained it a lot more eloquently than myself. And that you write about how that started with, you know, the Iowa workshops, these were, quote, white males reading white male fiction. There's the great garden metaphor, too, about who would have to explain or what you'd have to explain about a garden if you're a gardener, right? And they're, you know, they're fairly simple, but they are so illustrative so much. How about the idea of knowing your audience is, and you say that's craft. What, I guess, I guess audience is, I guess, what is your interpretation of audience? What does that mean to know your audience? Sure, so, you know, like, who do you want to read the story? Who do you want to touch with this story? I mean, with my kids, I make a lot of poop jokes, right? Yeah. Hey, jokes. That, that, they that, love that, it. They, and they it think kills, it's hilarious. Right? It kills. Yeah, kills. I don't, I don't like make those jokes, <laughs> you know, with my 25 year old students. Hey, give it a um, try. Because, right, it's a different audience. I think we, we think about this or we do this all the time, but for some reason we've, we've, teach or sometimes talk about craft as if it doesn't it's like void of this kind of consideration mm-hmm. um, and yet like when we think about like rhetoric and rhetoric studies right like it's, that's the oldest it's just the that's the oldest consideration and it's who your who your audience is right some great you know great points about how much even you know aristotle so many centuries ago still you know, really affects the way that you know plot and ideas of character a great line again is meaning and audience do not exist without one another and you really focus in on so many of the African writers, um, Chinwezu, Jemmy, and Madubuke. They have this metaphor of the sketch. And you write, they write that the sketch evokes the picture. Am I correct in saying that a lot of the, the quote-unquote criticism by Western writers of a lot of African writing is that it's it's not, I guess, fleshed out enough? Yeah, so there's this kind of criticism uh, against, you know, disempowered writers worldwide, right, or, or places where literature, you know, doesn't have as much power amongst Western readers, mm-hmm. um, that the characters are too dimensional, or, or the characters okay. like are, are not understandable, their motivations are not understandable, we don't have enough character development, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and of course, that's because we're, you know, people reading without the context of how other people work in the world might right. think, oh, I need to be have everything explained. But the you know the authors of that book, which is uh, decolonizing African literature, mm-hmm. they're making this point of like African literature for African readers, right? Like, who cares what you think? Because mm-hmm. just because you don't understand this character doesn't mean that the people I want to actually read this book don't understand the character because they understand how life works here. Right. Right. And then such a such a great example from uh, is it Gish Jens the author the writer mm-hmm. and she cites I believe in one of her books she cites like a like a an experiment where they have Asian um, readers and white readers and they count how many different events there are in a in a scene and the white the white readers were were counting more you know I think you know like sleeping and getting up or something you know whatever it would be two while the Asian writers saw fewer. Is, does that then link to the again criticisms or or misunderstandings of a lot of Asian literature, which again is so hard to to pigeonhole, but as not linear? 
Yeah, right. I mean, it could possibly. I mean, there's linearity itself, right? It's a fairly Western idea. There's, sure. Right. One of the things I, I think is interesting is like we have this idea of an apocalypse, right? Hmm. A lot of Asian countries don't have apocalypses because it, things go in cycles. Right? Uh, Any ending is a beginning. Um, and so our idea of like a book that moves linearly, that's totally cultural. And to put that into a context of thinking like, Books should move linearly is is just like kind of not only denying that other books can exist, but also like that other lives can exist and other ways of thinking about the world can exist. And other narrators and stuff, right? So I get I guess I guess the point one of the points there was that it was in a lot of Asian, Asian American writing, there's a lot more collectivity. There there are more narrators, you know, and that and that can of course mess with time. Didn't have to be, you know, this happened, then this happened. It's a lot of going back and forth. Yeah, there's a lot more of what Lisa Lowe called heterogeneity, multiplicity, and hybridity. Huh. So, you know, thinking about how fracted and um, and heterogene- heterogeneous Asian America is, mm-hmm. right? All of these various, you know, e- extremely large number of ethnic groups all put under this one category, you know, like and the very many different ways of life Asian Americans have to live to survive in these different places in the u.s and their different families and their different cultures and their different whatever right like how can you get that experience on the page sometimes that's going to require kind of thinking about stories as more than kind of one thing you you write about you know of course this is not the end all be all this this book is the beginning of a discussion the continuing of a discussion great line something about it's what's in the book is practical and practical Disable, right? You know, there's the theory, definitely. And there's also the practical. I wonder in your workshop, my my experience in workshop is limited to undergrad, but I definitely remember the, I mean, I think almost literally sitting by yourself and then everyone else is just facing you, you know, like the firing squad or something like <laughs> that, right? Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I had some good things come from it, but definitely some some negative things that I remember. What is What does your workshop look like? I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, you, you as, as, as an accomplished writer, there is there are objective things about writing. How do you how do you get away from like you know what that's the way that's your experience or you say that the sky is red? How do you get away from from that while also you know like you said being so inclusive and understanding that believability relatability don't mean anything they're they're not they're empty terms. Uh so I try to just run each workshop according to the writer and story you know or, or novel excerpt that I've got. Um, and we meet beforehand and we talk about what the writer wants out of workshop, what they found helpful in workshops past, you know, what is going on in the the workshop manuscript that we see. They haven't been able to explain about it, what they, you know, how that process of writing it worked, all of these different things so that I have as much context as possible for tailoring the workshop experience to the writer and piece at hand. Um, and I think that's like the basic first step. Hmm. I think I think even that maybe is is surprising and revelatory to a lot of people. Like I think there are what you have twelve or thirteen different ways to run a workshop. Yeah, right? probably more than that. Just, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's there's a debate style. There's the author as questioner. There's the, you know the, mm. so many things like that. I thought that was so interesting. Um, I wonder about again if this is a continuing or, or beginning conversation that I know has really hit home with so many people. Though I wonder. I know the book sales and all that's great. I wonder about some of the really positive and fun and, and interesting and and uh, nourishing um, feedback you've gotten from from students or from other teachers about like the workshop model and about just the book as a whole. 
yeah, I've gotten a lot of great feedback. I think it's been really helpful just for people to have uh, some kind of text, right, to point to. Um, I think these ideas are very, I mean, I know these ideas are very old and Mm. especially kind of in other academic uh, disciplines, they're very old. They're like ideas from the 70s in literary theory, but they haven't kind of penetrated creative writing as an academic discipline. And it helps just for people to say like, look, there's, you know, this this book that exists, right, that talks about these things. Mm. So that doesn't seem, you know, like I'm just saying this on my own without anything behind me, um, even though I think we should be able to listen to that. You know, mm. obviously there are people who need to have some sense that there's an authority or something. I'm just kind of standing in that place for them right now, but, you know, hoping we'll have many future ways of thinking about that. Hmm. This idea of many future ways, a great line is, quote, a workshop should not participate in the binding, but in freeing the writer from the culturally regulated boundaries of what it is possible to say and how possible to say it. Did you ever just like drop the proverbial mic? I mean, that's, that's a heck of a line. I mean, dude, it's, it's line you must have been like, man, pat yourself on the back or something. <laughs> uh, no, but I had some fun kind of being snarky in the book. And yes, I think we always have to have some fun when we're writing or what's the point. Like I, or for me, it's hard to get through something if I'm not having fun with it. Yeah. Um, and so the fun I was having there also always like with the ideas that I'm using to tell a story in the sense of wonder or disappear, doppelganger disappear and uh, just trying to, you know, set them out for people, but also practice them. Mm-hmm. One of the videos I was watching from six or seven years ago, you started off with four or five like, dad jokes. And yeah. you're I love dad jokes. Oh, it's so good. Dads. And, <laughs> you know, the couple definitely like, it took me a second read in, in Craft and Rule. I was like, that's actually hilarious. It took me a second because, you know, mostly serious, but, you know, some lines in parentheses or something. I was like, that's really funny. So if the whole being an incredible writer and being, uh, you know, a North Star for so many educators, if that doesn't work out, you can be a comedy writer too. <laughs> yeah. One day, the dream. One day. I want to, uh, you know, thank you so much. I know, like I said, that you're, you're probably going to do so many of these and I'm sure it's mostly fun, but it's also taxing. So Thanks for giving uh, me and, and us some of your time. And again, anybody who's listening, go buy The Sense of Wonder yesterday. Go buy it now. What are you doing? And especially for educators, Craft in the world, Real World is uh, just an incredible book. Congrats. Keep up the great work. And, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. Yeah, and, you know, the book's fun. It'll be fun. Definitely. It's, I hope I can promise that at least. The promise is definitely fulfilled. pleasure and again a huge thank you to matthew continue good luck to him with his writing and i'm so looking forward to continuing to follow his career and his important work thank you for listening to episode 161 you can now subscribe to the chills of will podcast on apple Podcasts. please leave a five-star review you can also ask for it by name using alexa and find it on stitcher spotify and on amazon music follow me on instagram where i'm at chills at will podcast or on twitter where i'm at chills at will po1 You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Please watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real, with my last name being spelled R-I-E-H-L. 
Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental Version, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 162 with Aaron Keene, whose Runaway, Notes on the Myths That Made Me, which is her debut full-length nonfiction book, is a memoir and essays about her parents' pop culture and gender. Aaron is also editor-in-chief at Salon Magazine and the author of three collections of poetry. This episode will air on January 24th. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Matthew Salisis, whose works, like craft in the real world and the sense of wonder, give you chills at will. Mm-hmm.